Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the specialist digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Now, for long-time listeners, you will probably already know who we are. You may have even heard one of our ads on a previous episode of this podcast. But for those of you who don't, here is a short introduction. At Create Engage, we help you create an effective marketing strategy for your consultancy, a strategy that will resonate with your target clients. And then we support you by delivering the campaigns you need to turn that strategy into a reality helping you to build your brand, raise your profile with your prospective clients, and ultimately generate return on investment from your marketing activity. Now, I could tell you about many of the great clients that we work with and the results we've delivered for them. But instead, I'm going to do something much more powerful and something that I would recommend you do for your own marketing. I'm going to let our clients do the talking for us. If you are currently thinking about marketing for your consultancy, you're going to want to listen to this. Create Engage started the process for us. They managed it end to end. They came up with some really creative ideas and we were really happy with the work that they did, which meant that we could just focus on running the business. Not only did we start conversations with clients that we hadn't spoken to before, but also there was tangible return on investment by some work that we were given. They've helped right from the initial shaping of the idea through to helping us work out what our end goal was. They've supported us with the visual identity and our positioning of the brand. We've had an immediate expansion of our network and and have initiated a raft of new conversations with owners, CEOs in in target client organisations and has led to us winning new projects already. One of the greatest compliments, I guess, is that one of our competitors even said that uh, they really like what we're doing with marketing. They wish they could be doing something as good. So from our perspective, we couldn't recommend Create Engage any more than this. I would certainly recommend Create Engage if you're a consulting firm. They really understand consultancies and the sort of challenges we face. And, uh, you know, I don't think you're going to get much better marketing anywhere else. So I wouldn't hesitate to recommend Create Engage. They did a really good job for us. So if you're looking for an agency that can help you achieve the results that our clients just described, then head to our website createengage.co.uk where you can find out more about how we support consulting firms like you. You can download our latest ebook and you can get in touch to talk about how we can help you take your consultancy to the next level through digital marketing. Hi and welcome to today's episode of Climbing Consulting. In this one I speak to Anoush Newman Managing Director at JMAN Group, the global data consultancy specializing in the private equity market. I was introduced to Anoush by my good friend Derry Hughes from Honeycomb, who, knowing a ton of people in our industry and having heard a number of my previous episodes, said that Anoush was someone that I had to get on the show. And I'm really glad that I did. And I'm really glad that Anoush made the time for this. To give you a bit of background on who Anoush is, he started his career in consulting in oil and gas. But after tiring of travel, he decided to change tack and move into a contracting life. Something that's quite common nowadays, but back when he was doing it, was actually quite uncommon at his level. It was his time contracting and his various conversations and brainstorming ideas with his cousin Leo that ultimately led to launching J-Man a business that started all because of one broken spreadsheet, something that we share more about in today's conversation. 
Fast forward to today, and J-Man is now a team of over 200 consultants. And earlier this year, they were recognized as one of the Times' top 100 fastest growing companies with an annual growth rate of over 80%. But Anoush and J-Man's journey hasn't been without its hiccups. And in this episode, Anoush shares openly the challenges they faced and how they managed to go from almost going under to becoming the thriving business that they are today. There is so much in this conversation, and rather than give you a list of everything you're about to hear, I'm going to jump straight to the interview and let you hear it for yourself. Whether you are thinking about launching your own firm or you want to hear from someone who has built a successful career in consulting to learn their secrets to help you do the same, this episode has everything for you, and I know you're going to enjoy it. So with the intro done, all that's left to say is please sit back, relax, and enjoy today's conversation with Anoush Newman. Anoush, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm looking forward to this. Obviously, lots has been going on for you and J-Man Group, and we'll talk all about that. But I was intro to you by Derry Hughes, who has a high quality bar when it comes to people he recommends for the podcast. So thank you for saying yes. I'm very excited for this. But to kick us off, for those who maybe don't know yourself, don't know J-Man Group, could you give an overview of who you are and how you got to where you are today? Sure. So yes, I'm founder and CEO of J-Man. J-Man itself is a data consulting business, so strategy, analytics, engineering, but focused predominantly on the pro equity sector. We've been going for about just over 10 years and I'm sure we'll dive into that. But my background is sort of fairly classical management, strategy, consulting, chemistry degree from uni and Everyone else who didn't want to go into science for a career, then figuring out what to do. I ended up uh, spending predominantly a lot of time in the oil and gas sector with Arthur D. Little and uh, traveled to weird and wonderful places around the world doing some really interesting stuff, but uh, then figuring out that quite like to not be in Kazakhstan or, or places like that. And um, Kazakhstan's at least a bit more glamorous than Northern Scotland, which is where I think uh, quite I spent, a lot of... I, yeah, I spent some time there as well, um, Sellafield, <laughs> these sorts of places. So a, a brilliant grounding in consulting and, and traveling and, and seeing how different people do the same thing in different parts of the world. But yeah, that's when I, so 2010 had, um, it just it physically and mentally wasn't, wasn't really working for me and I, I needed to try and do something else. Didn't know what to do. And that's when, you know, someone had said, have you thought about freelancing? And, uh, yeah. And then that's, that's kind of how that sort of mushroomed into, into J-Man and where we are today. Fantastic. Well, there's a long journey to talk about with J-Man and, and you've, you've teamed me up to your point there around leaving consulting to go freelancing. That is something, you know, that's quite a common path. You spend a few years in consulting, you know, you make connections, freelancing becomes an opportunity, you you know, whether that's as a contractor or an associate. What I'm quite interested in then is actually the decision to almost come back and, and start your own firm. Because for quite a lot of people, you know, you get to a point where that freelance life, that con- that associate life is quite good. You know, you make a good day rate, you're, you've got very little stress. I don't know that many people who've then gone on and built their own firm. So I'd love to get the story of kind of what led you to go on and say, right, now's the time to yeah launch my own firm off the back of it. Yeah, I think, I mean, timing is a critical element in this. So you say that, you know, it's quite a common path now. I wouldn't say it was an uncommon path then, but I think at that point to be freelance, you had to be a lot more senior, you know, as I was only five years worth of experience, but people were generally partner level or about to be partner level who'd then become very independent advisory type freelancers. So the gig economy wasn't the phrase then. And actually, when I, the reason you were either that sort of very senior level or you were 
kind of a researcher, like, you know, cold calling people, you know, as a freelancer. So that, that's not what you went to do. I that's it. not what I went to do. But there, there was a gap in the market for basically that kind of manager level doers. So people who could run a project, talk to senior stakeholders, but were just able and willing to get their hands dirty and, and, and do stuff. So, and, um, post the, the, the crash, people needed help, but didn't want to pay top consulting dollar. They'd got rid of a lot of their in-house strategy teams. So there was, there was just this void. And so I got, I got very busy very quickly and actually in, in different sectors and worked with some great agencies and so on. And, okay. and had so some, were you, and sorry, just cause it's a good point for people who maybe know the world now, were you working with multiple clients at that point? It wasn't kind of a day rate, one, one contract, one client thing. No, I, I start no, very much that, you know, one client, one contract, take whatever you can get. You just don't know when your next, next job's <laughs> coming from, next paycheck's coming from. And I think the, the first thing in the journey was just getting confidence I could pay my bills on my own. That was a huge marker. So it seems quite obvious, but I was still looking for a permanent job for, for quite a while, but then realizing that actually this freelancing thing can work. I'd met people who'd done it for a long time, although much more senior. So just the kind of confidence and thinking that, hang on, maybe this is a way to pay the bills and then, and then I can, you know, maybe figure out what I want to do along the way was a real eye opener. Saying that I still I took everything I could get for eighteen months and kind of didn't take a break. And but it was um no, that was great. So that was definitely the first first hurdle, realizing you can pay your bills on your own. Yeah. And and that tees us up nicely because to your point, and similar to you, I left consulting, went on to be a, a contractor and and yes, I know what you mean of that you're always one step away from unemployment. And so you, you do want to yeah, build that balance sheet sort of on your own account as it were and make sure you are taking those contracts. I guess what then led you to decide you wanted to pay other people's bills as well as your own? So there was, there was a couple of things. I mean, one was, so once I sort of crossed this, I'd, probably, I'd say probably about a year, yeah, maybe maybe sort of 18, 18 months, year to 18 months in, and kind of right, okay, this is something I can do. But in parallel, my cousin, Leo, who's a co-founder and CTO of J-Man, he'd had a longer, very distinguished career in Silicon Valley and had gone back to India as a software engineer and running a division of a big outsourcing house there and and we wanted to work together so we were just we were both free at the same time and in that we were just talking about wouldn't it be great if we could do something don't know what it was and we did all kinds of well, crap basically some interesting but sort of some really some really weird stuff but from trying to combine tech and consulting and you know whatever but so that was always back of mind but it was still he had a client was paying his bills i had a client contracts and you know, paying my bills but in the, in the uk specifically we there are a lot of grads who are out of work or couldn't because it was still post-crash it was still very hard to get jobs as as grads you know graduate hiring was was really low so i i'd, I'd met people friends of or brothers or and sisters of kind of my friends who were really smart people just couldn't get jobs and i was getting very busy and i thought well why don't i teach you excel and you know you could come and learn some excel and just help me out a bit i'll pay you a nominal weekly stipend or whatever it is and help me out and you know some of my clients were really receptive and said look we've got actually a bit of work we need doing i know you're full but can you help us and so so that sort of you know that we i was basically hiring them on a freelance basis and it was a sort of leverage model and and it, and it got to the point where i was about three four five people doing that and it was great because i was sort of clipping the ticket as it were but kind of but it was also great to see that it was feasible to kind of do this and and why people were interested in using this type of resource and how I could make it work and the kind of leverage could give me. And eventually I got to the point where I was doing multiple contracts at the same time, you know, three days a week and two days a week or whatever, but it meant I could, I could cover a lot more ground. That was how that started. And so, but then 
at one point, you know, one of them, you know, really great guy, David, he needed a job. He was like, look, I, I, you know, for various reasons, I need to be employed. Would you be willing to take a, take a chance and go and go from freelance to, to perm? And, and my wife kind of gave me great advice. I said, well, what have you got to lose? Do you, do you back yourself to sort of earn enough money to, to pay his salary for the year? And that's, that's how we started. So I was, I was still in dining table in Kennington at that point, but, but that was that again, that was the huge hurdle hiring, hiring someone. And then the next hurdle was getting an office, which was still the scariest thing we've ever done. Six, six person office when we had a couple of freelancers and in turn, David. And it was like, I can't do this from the. And I imagine to your point on timeline, this was kind of before a bit to what you said about the change in the gig economy that this was before kind of fractional offices and we works and was it was a thing or no i think that they were they were there i think but it was very i'd say mainstream it was you, you know to be a, a very cool business to you know want that you know to be a, you have to be a tech startup <laughs> yeah. um doing that not a consulting company kind of wouldn't really go you know, and we were we ended up being based in borough which is actually which was so there's a lot of innovative companies down there and sort of that southern kind of region yeah it's changed massively in the last like 10 years as well now everyone i know is like there's so many startups down there as well yeah absolutely i think you know that's a lot of there was a, i think there was we work there, there was an office group there were lots of these sort of fractional offices out there and but we just i just didn't know i, I hadn't even thought about it i hadn't even gone i was so not in that scene but and we took a six-person office which was probably about the size of the room that we're in now it's not very big and that was that was still it was like 1500 pounds a month i think and it was the scariest thing even to this day, one of the scary things I've ever done in business because that was like, right, this is this is real now. We've actually got a thing. But even that, I was still contracting, and it was still that was my major bread was from that, and it was sort of just trying to do different things in in parallel. No, and there's a few questions in there. And I do appreciate this was kind of the early period. We're quite a while back, so I, I don't want to spend our whole interview on it. But just because I know for some of our listeners, they will be thinking similar. Yeah. I think the first question, you know, to your point on bringing these grads on, how did those conversations come up with the client? Because again, something I, I sometimes see as a blocker is if you are a contractor, that's what you're known as, you know, you're a noosh and you do your job. You're not J-man in that context. How did you get the clients comfortable with, oh, well, I, I'm going to find a grad or bring a grad on? Were you just completely transparent? Did you kind of position yourself as a consultancy then? Kind of how did you yeah, get those first grads in? So a bit of a mixture of everything. So look, transparency is vital in the sense of you don't want to kind of just doing work in the background and then you know you're not kind of hiding them in the, in the cupboard and then presenting their work as your own and but at the same time i think the, the ultimate thing was trying you know with the clients to say look we bring someone else can help it's to show that adding leverage sometimes we weren't charging for them but it was to say no the, the stamp of quality that you've hired even if it's me is i guarantee it so i'm not pointing you off it's not this work is going to get done I just need a little bit of extra help or you need a bit of extra help. And it was, but I think looking for the opportunities to do it as well. And in some cases was either I was going on holiday or I was away a couple of times I was ill and, and things and said to the client, look, I know this stuff needs to get done. I've got someone who can help. There is a, obviously a rate difference. And, but look, as opposed to nothing happening, what, even if something happens, it's better. And are you willing to, to do that? And, and a lot of them are very receptive and some of them weren't. And it didn't always go smoothly, but kind of it was, I think the fact is I was looking, because I had some of these guys on payroll or, or there, it was just, you're always looking for the opportunity to do it in the right way. But being very, very transparent is key. But you need to, even now, you know, you've got to be very focused on the quality of the output and the client who's coming to you needs to know that it's going to get done in the right way. 
how you kind of do that is then more up to you. Well, and, and like you said there, I guess that it, that is no different. Is that the client wants an outcome, and and if you can provide the outcome, and it's at a cost they're happy with, actually, whether like I say you're doing that as a contractor or two contractors or three, your client's probably very happy, and it's it, it's more to asking the question than it is anything else. And just help with so that explains kind of almost how J-Man got going. You introed Leo a moment ago. Where does Leo enter the picture? So you've got this office in Borough, you've got your six kind of graduates or interns. Was Leo part of the picture then or how did he yeah. come in? Yeah, he, no, he was always there. Wasn't he? Because, I mean, he's I mean, physically based in, in Chennai, in India. And we were always talking. You know, he'd come over for a trip once or twice a year and it was very exploratory. You know, it was sort of half holiday, half, well, wouldn't it be great to work together? That, that, was, the, that was the driving force, really. We just wanted to work together. I think it, it then it took time and it crystallized, you know, where... Okay, well, he's got access to great tech talent in India, and, and you know there's obviously a huge scale there, and it's, it's a bit easier to hire in, in some cases than here, especially if you've got UK US clients, lower risk because of cost, but we can scale there. So, how do we combine the access to that market of talent with market for clients here, or how do you combine real technical capability with a consulting approach here, and what problems can you solve? And it, and we tried all kinds. We built sort of consumer apps. We built apps for startups. We built. We were sort of effectively like a dev team for for other kind of uh, tech based businesses. Uh, doing pure software, trying to put things into the the cloud. Unquote, unquote. That was that was that was the hot topic at the time. So we we tried a whole bunch of things, and I remember those days very very fondly because we you know, to extent didn't really know what we were doing, but we were kind of trying to figure it out. But then the real genesis actually came sort of twenty thirteen after we just made our first employee in, in London where I was doing a project and my spreadsheet broke because it was just too big. I think too many summits, too computationally expensive. Uh, I'm sure consultants everywhere would have would have gone through this. And I had to be with him and my client was sort of slightly in despair, like, oh my God, this analysis can't get done. And the thing that all consultants or anyone uses Excel dreads, you press calculate and it doesn't calculate, you know, it goes one percent, two percent. But Leo was there. He said, what are you what are you doing? I try to explain to him. I was in a very stressed position. Like, oh, yeah, trying to, and he just looked at me like I was an idiot and said, you know, there's a better way of doing this. Have you, have you heard of a database or, or SQL or something beyond Excel? So anyway, that, that's what, just pure stroke of luck, really, that where I have to be there at the time and you could look over my shoulder and tell me how to do this. But the big things, we were looking for the opportunity to work together. And this, that's what, when we realized this is, okay, this is something that can really make a difference. And, you know, we, we piled in on that. And then once, once we did that, the client was, okay, can we do this on a bigger scale? It was like, there is no limit to the scale we could do this on. And suddenly for a retailer, we could say we looked at 600 stores, three years of transactions, when normally they'd look at 20 stores and six months of transactions. And we could they could go to board, they pulled levers, they got great benefit, and um, you know, away, away we went. So that's when we became known as a you know, big data company, uh, or we could do big data. And that was, that was how we started. But we were still had our bill paying to take care of and contracting. So it took a bit of time before we then decided to, to, to really double down on it. Well, I, I love the story, Anish, and I'm sure it is a consulting accolade breaking Excel. You know, I think you, you've got to have quite a few summifs um, probably nested in there. Oh, um, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was Excel. It was 2000, Excel 2003, I think we had to use because the client was... Um, on that, and it was just a complete nightmare. But yeah, I think yeah, a rite of passage. Yeah, well, as, as I say, I think definitely a good credential for someone running a data consultancy. If you're good enough to break Excel, you're you're probably good <laughs> enough to hire. But um, I I really like to your point because it, one of the questions I was going to ask was around actually how you and Leo decided to work together or decided 
you were happy that it was a good fit. And I think, you know, you've answered that to your point around, we tried a few things, we were always dabbling with things. And actually, I think it's quite a nice message for anyone listening as well, almost. Yes, it was kind of luck or serendipity that you found what ultimately became J-Man. But actually, if you hadn't been looking for it, you probably wouldn't. You know, to your point, if Leo hadn't been there or been able to look over your shoulder and have that chat, you wouldn't have reached out to him. But because you were, that came about. And I think that's just quite a nice message for anyone. Almost opportunity finds when you go seeking, rarely the other way around. Yeah, and I think they um, it's, it's a cliche, you know, that luck is when opportunity and preparation meet. That was the one I was looking for. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And I think that, that's been a story of our growth, really, is that we were always, if you like, prepared to pull the trigger on things, and, and but we just didn't know how or what. And should we talk about the later years, you know, we'll, we definitely didn't set out to be kind of where we are today. We didn't know this, but when well, we knew we wanted to try and build something at some point together, and then when the when the opportunities came, because we were kind of ready to to make the jumps, we went for it. And I think we made a few bets along the way, but we went right. Okay, this is what we're going to do. So, but we definitely didn't know it at the, at that time. So I think that, uh, and I think trying things, failing sometimes fast, sometimes slowly, and um, all that kind of all, all really helped. But uh, no, we, we you know we we were always together. I think through through it all, and I think that's been a big part of why we've been able to grow in the last few years so quickly as well. Yeah, and, and like you say, there's, there's probably some more bets we're going to come on to from the later years, which which has obviously worked for you. And and your point there around failing fast. And I, I'll ask this question almost to an extent knowing the answer, because I think what you highlighted is you, you took these little gambles, but throughout, you know, you had your contract, you had your, you know, those sort of graduates whose tickets you were punching. There was, there was an income to pay your bills so that actually if your app development or your clouds startup didn't work, it, it wasn't a big deal. Because I think, you touched on, you know, your your wife said, go for it. Do you back yourself? You've got a great wife by the sounds of it, by the way. <laughs> I think, you know, the bit of the story that you didn't mention for our listeners, and I will just for further context is, if I'm right, at that time, you were also expecting your first child. So you had you two, mortgage, child on the way, yeah. particularly for people at that life stage, kind of how did you get comfortable with that? It sounds like your wife was comfortable with you doing it. How, how did that kind of conversation go? So actually it was a little bit, a little bit later. I think you know, so 20, 2013 was when we had our first project. But I think for two, three years, was I was, I was still consulting, still, still contracting, still the same. We were just thinking, how can we grow? I think the, the theme, I think all of this was around like risk mitigation. So we would take some risks, but knowing that actually there's a way to mit- mitigate it. Uh, if we hire someone, okay, can we break even? So a lot of the conversations we would take about trying things was, can we break even off this? Or even if we can't off this, can we do something else which would help? fund it because we were all bootstrapped you know there was no uh, money at this point and even the failing fast thing we would prepare for something as if we didn't want to fail i think that's the thing that you know we were not doing things thinking oh if we fail screw it you know it's okay it's like no we really wanted to succeed it was just when we realized that this is not what we what we could do or wasn't the right thing then we did it so we were always everything we entered into we entered into with the spirit of we want to nail this and we're going to prepare accordingly and so we got to a stage, and I think um, then the period you talked about was where actually it was sort of the first, I don't say wobble, but it was, what are we actually going to do? Because we had a few people that had you know some interns who wanted to come and join. We They were great. We offered them. They surprisingly said, yes, we'd love to join. Leo had a few more people in India, and it, but it was still at the point you could turn back and kind of go. And I thought, you know, baby on the way, I'm just going to have to get a proper job because I can't, even though I've been... Mean, contracting for, for five years or so it was don't be silly 
and, and my wife is great. You mentioned she's great. She's awesome. And, you know, just sort of, uh, she never said anything. She was just, uh, to me around this, but I just thought I'm going to have to do it. And then, yeah, I suppose circumstance, um, our, our first child, Luke, he arrived four weeks early. Gosh, that's my son arrived two weeks late and I don't know what I would have done if he'd arrived any earlier. Oh, we were com- comically <laughs> underprepared. I think, <laughs> and I think, I mean, ridiculously underprepared. And he spent the first sort of first week in hospital. He was, he was absolutely fine, but it was, it was just, it was such a shock to the system. And even, you know, on top of, you know, having babies like a bomb going off in your life and you don't know what you're doing. And, uh, but that actually tricked, and, and I remember, I think it was, a uh, I was working in, uh, the other side of London. So it was, wasn't a great commute from southeast to sort of northwest London. And, um, I had to also hadn't been, and well, kind of just before the, uh, our baby had arrived. So was physically struggling anyway, but then I was all this, but then we kind of, I couldn't make it home in time for, for bath one night. I know when it was early baths and, uh, I think something just clicked in my head and I missed it by about five minutes. And I thought if I, if I do this, I'm always going to be at the mercy of, even if I'm just contracting, I'm always going to be at the mercy of a client because they're still buying the individual. They still kind of own an individual. I loved it. I had some brilliant clients in that, in that sort of sense. But I just thought, you know, there was no work from home or anything at that point. Very little luck of the draw. If you've got a slightly more hard nosed client or a hard nosed work environment, when you're still trying to take all the different contracts you can, you can get, you could be stuck. So that's why I thought, okay, foolishly or not, that this is the time to double down. So if we're going to, if we're going to do this, let's do it properly. And that's, I made the decision, right? At some point soon, I have to stop selling myself as a contractor. It took about another year I, because I got a brilliant, I was about to do it and I got to offer a brilliant contract with a client, a really interesting role, which I thought I've just, I've just got to take one more and do it. But it ended up being about eight, nine months. And then, but yeah, so June 2016, that was me. Done, done with contracting. Done, done with uh, billing myself out. And, but again, it was about mitigating the risk. How do you mitigate the risk of that? And do we have the clients lined up and how do we, how do we get there? And, and so on. So that, that was the journey when that was when we learned, right, we're going to go. But again, given we were, we were always bootstrapped, it was sort of, how do we go in the right way? And, you know, when do, when we sort of earn, earn the right to sort of hire more people and, and do this and, and so on. And so, so there's a lot of thought went into it. Yeah. Well, and, and, and thank you for filling in those sort of gaps and, and adding some color to that story. Cause yeah, I, I do know what you mean about bath time and, and that poignant shift of, right, this is how I've got to you know, change things to make that work. And I like what you say about risk mitigation as well. Cause I think often we can be focused on the, you know, it's the profit, it's the increase, it's the growth. But if you come back to how can we at least, you know, cover costs, particularly in an industry like consulting where gross margins are quite good. So, you know, worst case as a contractor, you might only need to work four months and then actually it depends on lifestyle and things. But starting that way around means you've always got a you know, a baseline that you can protect. And I think for others listening like that, that's quite helpful. You know, yes, you might not instantly have the same salary but if you can survive on half of that let's say you've got that time back yeah and i, I think i mean ironically for a data consultant in the end kind of wasn't hugely metric driven at that point of kind of <laughs> i need this much in the bank i, I think the, the risk mitigation bit also part of it is identifying what risks uh, feel more risky to you the risk of not being able to be there for my family who had just gone through you know quite a traumatic but it was a difficult period when you know early in so on was far greater than than perhaps risking I might not be able to get revenue by you know building myself out or, or building a business you know kind of that again everyone will be different and you have to I think you have to find your own way so what what risks matter to you for some people it will be no actually I the risk of not being able to go traveling for six months and see the world and have these experiences is a far greater risk than 
trying to hire people and have leverage and and that's perfectly great you know that's um you can identify that but the the best advice i think well two bits of advice which i've you know one one around the spending which you talk about the one from a, from a great guy he he told me i think he wants to trade off can you build a business and have a family and how do you do that and he said that's not even a question you know it's sort of you can have your cake and eat it if you can define your cake and so it was not a question of is it a business or a, or a family or entrepreneur or seeing my kids it was no we can do actually the way to be there for my family and for my kids is to kind of go down this path so I, I love the yeah i'm gonna rob that and, and use it at some point i'm sure anish because I, I think in today's world where you know there's hundreds of people on instagram more so on linkedin now telling you what your cake should look like i think that point of define your own cake and then you can have it all i think it's a really powerful one yeah and it's it's very personal and you can't i've got lots of friends who are you know incredibly capable and and, and should you know could easily do what we've done or they'd have much more you know more in the in the tank from a network and credibility and capability standpoint but they don't want to do it because it feels wrong and too risky for them for different reasons and it's like well great you know as long as you're enjoying your life that's it's not for us to preach about what it is but this works this works for us and it means that now even they're very busy and lots of things going on you know have a brilliant life and kind of spent a lot of time with my family and and the journey we've been on has been because of that i think as opposed to you Fantastic. know trade-off and so i want to turn to you you talked about taking risks and, and it's probably as best to segue as i can think of to go into what might be a risk that i think has paid off for jayman but again you can tell me how much or how little it was which is your decision to to focus very much on private equity so i understand that was something that you and leo consciously decided to do as an industry and i'd love to understand I guess the decision process, you know, what was it that made you say we have to focus at all and how did you decide private equity was the, the way to go? So I think, I mean, for, for context, I think we were talking about it the other day. We've basically met, we've made sort of four bets, I think, in our J-Man career, really. It's sort of, one was to work together and, you know, it sounds obvious, but like that obviously very early on. But even then, I think, you know, we were actually sort of separate entities for quite a while. He had his own company and, and we only really, I think 2017 or 18, we were working together, but we decided to rebrand and still separate entities, but J-Man, so J-Man Group UK, J-Man Digital Services India, and we were branded as one, and we both valued our independence, and then, but at that point, that was the, you know, watershed. So I think it's always a, you know, working together is a strategic decision. How you do it always evolves over time, so that was that was one, and that, that definitely paid off. We wanted, I think, important one, I especially for tech-driven consultants, or as we said, we are a services business. So there's always a temptation if you've got that capability to build product. And I think I'm not talking about consulting product like a, a pricing strategy or a marketing strategy. You know, that's that's absolutely fine. But like a box, a tech yeah. box that... Something you can put in the cloud to yeah, our conversation. Yeah, <laughs> cloud and charge, start charging SaaS fees and like recurring. I mean, it's obviously the, the dream. You want the recurring revenue and um, completely get it. but. I think Leo had seen it gone wrong in you know, one of his old places where he worked, where they were a services business, tried to build a product, and it went wrong. And he said to me, look, if you're going to build a product, we would have done it already. But it's, you know, let's just focus on being the best services provider and business we can be, which has definitely made a lot of things quite easier. We might do something around product some, someday, but we'll do it in the right in the right way. But so that was two. The fourth one, the third one is pre PE, which we'll come back to you, but the fourth one was then getting an investor, which is, which is what we've now done. So, but PE, yeah, we, 
so 2016, we decided to sort of, right, we're going to grow a business. And we, we grew to about just about 2 million revenue. And I think through 2018 by the classic kind of, we'll, we'll do work for cash. You know, who do I know who's got, <laughs> who's, who needs help? And we are smart things with great capability. You can get stuff done. No real kind of proper proposition. And, you know, we were, but we were a data consultancy. So people were always interested, but we did a lot of, you know, interesting, but varied, varied things, but quite ad hoc in terms of how we grew, but we grew and we got to about 2 million. And we, and I think we realized, no, this, we need to do something else. We can't just rely on this. And, um, we thought that work would still keep going, but if we wanted to grow, we need to do something more strategic, one of the better words. And yeah, this is where we, we, we peed, you know, friends in that space. So the numbers in PE are enormous and it was sort of 20, so 2017, 2018 and kind of, it was really had come into its own as a sort of global mega trend. And it was, it obviously is today and money was cheap and deals were blowing. And you see a lot of providers to pee who sort of get their fees, get lost in deal costs. And you think, Oh wow, brilliant. You know, we'd like, we'd like some of that, please. <laughs> and, um, but I think the, the point was we thought there was, and talking to friends and we had, you know, some blurry close friends of mine who were brilliant sort of advisors and counsel and, and, and really helped sort of say, look, you know, we're, the big strat houses are great for deal work. And, but when we get to value creation, we'd like something more than a PowerPoint and having spent seven figures plus on it. So there's definitely appetite for more data driven, tangible, nimble, get stuff done mentality. But that commercially literate data consultant, oh, I don't know. So there's something in there, but kind of how do you, uh, how do you do it? So we, we decided, right, if we can get into a fund and we can go across the portfolio, that's a great channel for us. And, we didn't have a sales team or, or anything like that. And it sounded really interesting. So that's, yeah, that's how we, we decided, right, we're going to do it. And actually I had no idea how we were going to do it at all. Yeah. So we, I said, you know, 2018 in Spain, our away day, I, you know, we didn't have a PE client at this point. It was very nascent, but I stood up and said, by this time next year, we will have a PE client. This is how we're going to grow. And I think that's the other thing when you start hiring people, ambitious people, you know, who want to, want to grow, they're going to ask, well, how are you going to grow? You need a plan. And, we're not really planners at that point. So, you know, it was the start of a very interesting year for us, probably the most valuable year we had in our, in our journey was, it was incredibly tough on all fronts. But yeah, I think I went to 65 P meetings in that year and it was, it was a very old fashioned knock on doors, some introductions, some hard discussions with hard buyers who, you know, some were very polite and actually most were very polite, but also very direct and saying, I just don't get what you're trying to sell. And, and rightly so, because what we put in front of them was, you know, not well thought through. But we took a lot of learnings. And each meeting, we took a lot of learnings and we just kept refining what we were doing. And how do you find the right? And then we found the right lingo and the right offering. And actually, we could say these are the three things that we do really well. Uh, and these are, this is why we're different from a engagement model sort of standpoint. And then once we, once we got our first, one or two gigs and we did did a good job it's it's noble from there but that year felt felt like a very long year <laughs> i i can imagine and i there's lots of questions that i, I want to jump off here but i'll, I'll just because you mentioned it there i think i'll run with your your meetings and actually getting the clients because particularly private equity and a lot to the reasons you said i know a number of services firms who'd love to work in private equity as you touched on the deal fees are massive you're just part of that cost they're very easy buyers once you're in and well, not saying easy, yeah. sort of in a pejorative, but getting in that industry is very hard. 
And while people say it about PE, I think it's the same. Any industry breaking into a new industry is hard. And if this is the secret source, you know, stop me. But you're putting there 65 meters. Actually, how did you approach that? You got off stage in Spain. You said, right, we're doing this. How did you approach that sort of that year? Was it just we're hitting the phones and we're going to try and speak to as many firms as possible? To your point, did you start with the proposition and iterate it? Did you start with some friendly coffees and refine it? If you were doing that again, how would you or, you know, take your learnings? How did you? I think one thing, you know, our business is very, very proud of is sort of how we went through that. We didn't know what we were doing. And I think um, it's fair to say. So we didn't, and we're not cold callers. You know, we're not that, hit the phones and, hey, do you want data services? So there were so friendly coffees with people that I, you know, very good friends of mine. But when they made an introduction to someone, you know, at a, you know, at decent PE funds, I think we really respected their time. And actually, it wasn't just going and, hey, I'm thinking about data, selling to P, give me some advice. We put our best foot forward. This is kind of, you know, who we are, what we think is our proposition. Now, the content and the quality of the content was not great. You know, like there was obviously huge amounts of learning that we had to go through. But for what we knew then, that was our, we put our best foot forward. It turned out our best foot wasn't good enough and we had to kind of change. But I think if we hadn't done that from meeting one, with people who are fairly friendly contacts who wouldn't have learned as quickly. So we were prepared to fail fast in the sense of go, all oh, right, actually this, this stuff's not working. We need to change it and, and, and go again. But we were willing to, to do that because we'd done the preparation. I think if you'd gone in and just had a couple of nice chats and got some high level pleasantries and a bit of feedback here, oh no, there is an appetite for this. And we wouldn't, we wouldn't have gone as quickly i think so that kind of bias the action and go right let's let's put what we know if it gets ripped apart okay i mean it was something very painful i remember one conversation before good friday april 19 which was not a great way to go to easter weekend but yeah it was super helpful and i think for every meeting we were getting closer and there were a lot of frust- i mean i'm happy to talk through and a lot of frustrations a lot of okay this is actually going to work but there was enough faith that actually you know we're doing the right things and we think it's going to come it just it just took a bit longer than we thought, but in hindsight, doing it from a standing start in sort of nine, 10 months is not bad. So Yeah, no, I think I think it's very good. And I think your points there in learnings, I, I will touch on, but just because you, you mentioned it there and sort of that April, that I won't ask you to repeat everything about the meeting, but that kind of Easter meeting, how did you, and Leo and the team, how did you keep that faith? How did you, you've been to 20 of these meetings, let's say everyone's been varying degrees of polite to not polite, basically telling you, no, Anoush, we don't need you or we don't need data. How did you keep that perseverance? And, and to your point, what was telling you this was still a good idea? And how did you hold on to that? So we'd had enough, I think, of the 20 meetings, say, kind of 20 different funds we'd spoken to, like two or three had been, may not be the right ratio, but really encouraging. So despite, you know, and I think even then we'd met, they wouldn't have been like the real first ones we'd met. They'd been kind of couple and down the line where we'd refined a bit. And like, okay, no, get it. And actually, we're kind of looking for this. And can you do this? And they sort of gave, we'd have a portfolio review with them and whip through all their companies. And can you do this? No, great. So I think we had enough encouragement that we thought, okay, it's coming. And but that first engagement with a PE fund is is critical, but they also, you've got to get it right. There's no point trying to uh, sell yourself into something that you can't do because that would be, that'd be it. You know, you'd have torture relationships. So you've got to be very honest with yourself in them. But we had enough encouragement that it was going to come. Also, I'd say a lot of blind stupidity kind of in hindsight <laughs> that, no, it's going to come. And I think that's kind of where we, we learned a huge amount. And actually, probably the first time we took our eye off the ball from the risk mitigation perspective. 
because we thought it's going to come. Let's keep hiring. And we, we spent money as opposed to invested it. Oh, so you hired for the team just on the back of that confidence that you will get the PE work. Yeah. And we all get, you know, we'd, we'd grown and we'd grown from nothing to two million. We thought we're going to keep growing and uh, let's just keep hiring. And it was almost a bit of a bums on seats as opposed to is this person really going to add? And we'd got a bit lazy, complacent. We'd also thought, oh, we've kind of got this or we've made it and other people can start doing some of this stuff for us. And no, we, we took our off ball for sure from that perspective. And I was like, my job's going to get P and everything else can, someone else will do the operations and the, the people and the this, that. And, um, no, it was, it was hard. I think then, then, then you know, they, they say about, you know, when you get into trouble, like financially, it happens gradually, then suddenly, and it kind of, it did happen a bit like that. And we had a client that didn't pay. So it was, you look back at the numbers now and you, it looks like just a little blip, like we had a flat year and, oh, then we went again. But in the thick of it, it was quite harrowing. And, but it, we tried to bring people into the business to help to sell and they couldn't sell. And, but we got to kick up the backside at the, at the right time. And okay, now we need, we need to sort this out and went back to basics. But then at the same time, because we'd been doing all this stuff with PE, eventually it came and it came in at the right time and we were able to kind of grow again from a revenue perspective. But. Also, we'd got our scrappiness back, I think. So that really helped. You know, we got into a good place and then COVID hit. But because we were in that mindset of every penny counts, look after every dollar, but growing. Actually, when COVID hit, we were, we were in a pretty good place to sort of, to, to get through that. And it proved to be the catalyst for, you know, much, much bigger growth. Well, I think teed me up nicely for something I did want to ask about to your point, that COVID period. And, and I'm interested to dive into. those challenges you did have. I think just one probably last question on the PE piece. And again, just because I I find this kind of opening a new market, I know will be something quite interesting for people. You you touched on learnings. And there's a few learnings that I think it sounds like you had, you know, some of it was around product market fit, for want of a better word. Some of it sounds almost like it was industry terminology, I think you mentioned. Some of it was I mean, one obvious question is, how did you find 65 PE firms? You know, did you just look in the yellow pages or Google? Almost, what were, if it was those, it's an easy answer, but what, what were those big learnings and kind of, how did you hone in on which were the right ones to be focusing on? Yeah, that's that's an ongoing question, I think, kind of for, for us. So look, a combination of things. And I think, again, it's another consulting cliche, but bias to action. I think is important because you can plan and like, right, actually, how am I going to attack 65 funds or how am I going to do it? And, but actually we just need to get out there. And it was one of these things. So we're a big believer in channels and, and partnerships for, for sales. So we've had a great relationship with recruiters, you know, a great one and who are always in this space. And some of them have been agencies that I'd contracted with and they would say, Hey, look, we know that fund X is interested in data and why don't we put you in touch with them? And we had some commercial relationships, some which are not. We then independent consultants who are, you know, the more gray hairs who would have contacts and we'd say, well, you can use us as leverage for your work and white label us if you want to kind of help again, revenue, but more contacts. There's other consulting firms we partnered with more generally on a similar basis where we could be their deck data and tech arm and they might be focused on the public sector or something. We had a lot of these parts, a lot of friends <laughs> and it's, and it's quite a small world. So we'd get recommendations and some we'd like, we, we really want to meet someone there and, you know, had, and, you know, the six degree separation, you're probably like three in London, particularly probably two, three degrees separation away from, from someone if you really want to. The thing is then if you really want to, that's great. Get a meeting, but what are you going to talk to them about and how are you going to be ready for it? You know, if this is your one shot with someone, are you going to put your best foot 
forward. And again, I think we were always very comfortable even now. If we put our best foot forward, given what we know today, if we put our best foot forward and we do everything we can and we plan to mitigate the risk and all the rest of it and we fail, I can, we can live with that. That's okay. But then learn from it and incorporate it into your next meeting. But if you just didn't prepare properly or you, or you kind of were a bit lazy or took it lightly, then that's, that's big trouble. So we had lots of different channels and ways to kind of get these things. We prepared properly. We went to, to these, these meetings. And I think it was very much trying to listen to what they wanted. What are their problems? And I think that was, you know, it, again, was, I think we kept hearing the same things from different people. MI in the mid market management information is a big challenge. You know, we buy a business, they know how to CFO, oh, systems everywhere, Excel. It's just, I just, I just wish someone could create a board pack from, you know, touch of a button. And we kept hearing it and it's like, what is this MI? And I don't, I never heard of, you know, you heard of BI, I've never heard of M. And then, so when we went to the next meeting, it's like, here's our MI solution or MI proposition. Ah, okay. Right. Interesting. And again, things that we already did, but we just didn't have the right badge for it. Flexibility of engagement model, especially for, for funds who had their own data team and all these different types of things. Some we had, some we had to create, some we had to rebadge, but we learned as we went. And there's just no substitute, I think, for just persistence with this. And I think luckily we were naive enough and had enough faith that it would keep going so we could we could we, it would come through so we could keep going but i think that's what got us through in the end uh, some some great points and, and that last point around the bimi difference actually uh, it's funny isn't it? so often they may be slightly different but a lot of these elements are industry terms or just knowing how certain things are spoken about how the pain points pop up differently but back to your your main point of listening i think sometimes you know, as bright consultants we can be guilty of knowing what our customer wants because we've thought it's a great idea and actually what you've just talked about is the other way around to that i think yeah absolutely i think even we say today i think should is quite a dangerous word they should get this they should want this they, sh- they should need this and i think if you keep saying should it's well either they don't need it really but you think they do or you're not explaining it properly and i think that's kind of where you know whenever we have conversations now and oh, they should get it really or it's our fault. We're not explaining it. We haven't badged it in the right in the right way, or or we're barking at the wrong tree. This is not a pain point for them. So, I think that listening, and then, but I think we turned it around very quickly. So, literally, it'd be the next meeting we'd go to. Some, I think, I'd have one in the morning, one in the afternoon, and morning we'd we'd get some impolite feedback from someone, and then we'd you know, over lunchtime r- try and rapidly turn it around. And then go to the next meeting and go, right, let's, let's try it slightly differently. So it was, it was incremental, but by the end, you know, it's chalk and cheese, what, what the proposition and everything looked like. So yeah, it was a real learning curve. I want to turn to, and you, you teed me up for it earlier, but that, that scrappy period, because you, you mentioned when we were talking about private equity that part of that focus, you know, the business you'd grown, it, certain things weren't quite where you wanted them to be. And I think this is given the world we're in at the moment, the economy, quite a poignant topic because. Others might be finding that, you know, having had COVID growth, they've up sort of increased their numbers, suddenly benches are forming. Can you yeah, share a bit more about that time and I guess some of those issues that had cropped up and, and how you dealt with them? Yeah, I think I said, you know, the, the have your cake and eat it was one really good bit of advice. The other one I got, a very good friend of mine, in terms of growing, he said, and cost control, it was sort of don't spend money until it hurts. That's an, almost an extreme example. but especially in, in the world of growth, scale, you know, prepare for scale, ahead of the curve, all these things, there's, there's absolutely good cause and reasons to do that. And, you know, we're, go- we're in a 
PE back journey ourselves now. So we're, we're planning for growth and, you know, there are certain things you have to do. But there is a big difference between spending money and investing money. And I think that's one of the, that's one of the things that we learned. So, you know, when we, we spent money on stuff we just didn't need and we hadn't thought about it and it was sort of, I'm quite vanity, but it was sort of, oh yeah, no, it's fine. We'll spend on this software license or, or operations people and without even thinking about why or this event, we'll go to this event or we'll do this. And, and we lost that kind of every pound is a prisoner type, type mentality. Which at the other extreme, if you just if you're so tight all the time, you know, you'll and you don't invest, you can you can never grow. But I think we we lost a bit of that, and but it's also very hard when you have when you have a team you're trying to grow, and that, that if you if you don't spend or if you don't invest, they'll think of it look at it as like a lack of ambition, and you know, so it's a, it's a delicate balance to to have. But we we just I mean we just cleaned house, we went through every line of cost. We realized we, and we were just there was so much fat in the system, and actually in terms of our, our spend and we were just much more controlled and we took ownership of it, you know, myself and, and Leo and like, no, right. We want the team going and doing what they're good at, try and sell work and do work. We'll handle all this. And we, you know, we put the foot down and said, no, you can't spend money here. Actually be very crispy or invoicing. Let's make sure we're doing this. Let's, and we put some discipline in. So that was, it's all that, that fear factor kind of, oh God, what happens if we don't get paid next month or the work doesn't come in? Can we, can we be ready for it? That thing, that's what the, as opposed to expecting just everything to be fine. That's kind of the spirit of that we recaptured during that time, I think. Well, and I, I love, by the way, your phrase of every pound's a prisoner. I think uh, there's, there's quite a few quotes we're going to have out of the back of this nation, <laughs> and that's one of them. No, um, no, none of them are mine, by the way. Kind of, uh, uh, <laughs> Sorry, you're attributing them as we go. So yeah, 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 yeah. Don't worry about that. But And you mentioned it earlier, so I don't know if it links to this, but I'm going to ask about it. Is uh, Before this interview, you talked about earning the right. You mentioned it a bit earlier. How does that earning the right link to that scrappiness? What's that that sort of got to do with it? Oh, look, I think there there are so many aspects to that. And again, I you know I wouldn't preach about sort of what's what's right for us necessarily isn't. And I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's it's the only way to think about things. But you can look at it both ways. You can look at it from a like a, a client service perspective, or you can look at it and then look at it in, internally. So if you want to raise your prices with your clients, and we get told you should think about raising your prices here and all that, we have done and. Actually, if you're not in a good place, like delivery wise with your client or the last couple of projects have gone okay-ish or whatever, it's a very hard discussion to have. I'm sure there'll be lots of pricing strategies out there. You can say, no, you can, this is how you do it. But, and we've always thought we have to earn, try and earn the right to kind of tell our clients, look, we're adding a lot of value. We haven't put our price up in X number of times. So we're going to do it and make that a very easy conversation. We don't enjoy conflict and negotiation and all that kind of stuff. Again, rightly or wrongly. So that's, that's one. And actually, if you want to tell your client, I've actually got a new service line or I've got a new offering, have you earned the right with them from a trust and consistent quality of delivery? And are you that trusted partner where they can go, okay, you've earned the right to kind of talk me through this and pitch it to me. So that's, that's one aspect. Internally, I think it's then, yeah, where are you going to put your money and where are you going to, if someone says, right, I, I, I want to go and spend some money on an advisor to, to do this think about this this thinking around our go-to-market strategy or whatever it's like well okay that's fine but have we done our homework have we prepared have you earned the right to kind of go and spend that spend that money or invest and in, in, invest that money if we think you know i think a big one for us is when we hired our on our cfo sarah two years ago she joined as head of finance and like completely transformational but and it was felt very risky for us as you know a more expensive hire who's not billing and you know this is this is going to be hard 
but we felt actually at that point we learned the right because we'd done it all ourselves. We'd sent out all the invoices ourselves. We'd done everything. We were kind of a sort of stretched breaking point. And we thought, okay, again, we mitigate the risk, but let's, let's try this and let's do it. And you know, thank, thank God we did. <laughs> but I think there's that have you actually, and so we need, and you start thinking about scale and you start thinking about head of the curve and spending or investing. Well, have you earned the right to do that? Are you profitable at the moment? Is work coming in? Can you see a pipeline of stuff? Are you sure the market is there? Are your team not stretched, but are they busy enough to justify people coming in? You know, all these types of things. I think if you've thought it through as opposed to we just need to prepare for scale. My pet peeve is also PAs. You see a lot of startups with who are pre-revenue or haven't got anything going yet. And then they, the first thing they do is order, they, they hire a PA and it's like, really <laughs> kind of where where is that and um you know that that sort of stuff is kind of i think where it's just it's just a question of looking in the mirror and going can you can you really justify this so um i, I really i really like that sort of framing of it and, and to your point it's kind of i think plays well with that consulting mindset as well of competition is actually have you have you earned that right you know have you done your homework so you need to get external support in to your point of don't spend until it hurts does it actually hurt I think it can be very easy, again, to your point there with startups. You, know, you see on LinkedIn, someone's office looks like this or someone's done that or and actually it becomes keeping up with the Joneses, whereas, uh, you know, as, as you are actually thinking about yourself and your business saying, have we really earned this? Have we achieved kind of the level before to really go up? I guess is what protects you from the downside, as you said, that scrappy period where it sounds like you maybe didn't, you forgot that lesson, didn't earn the right and, you know, that's why it came back to you. Yeah, and uh, absolutely. And look, it's it's not easy. I'm not, you know, we've made, as I said, that year was kind of a brilliant case study on how to not earn the right. I just spent some, you know, I mean, and I think it just brought us back down to earth. And but now, actually, why having an investor has been has been an interesting one for us because they're effective. They're challenging us and saying, you know, have you thought about this? But they are also saying, no, effectively, you've earned the right to go and spend some money to do this. You haven't thought about this. We need to have this in place to go on the journey we want to go. And it's okay to go and you know, invest in this. And that's, it's still on us. It's a minority partner. We still have to manage all of it. And, you know, it's still not easy to make those sort of spending decisions, but it helps. And you think, okay, we're, we're doing it for the right reason. I think sometimes that's where you, your point of keeping up the Jones is sometimes it can be you're doing things, potentially the right things, but for the wrong reason. And ultimately then they don't succeed. And I think. You, you brought me onto something I did want to cover. You, you, you mentioned there taking, you know, taking the external investment, bringing bad capital on board as a partner, and I'm really interested in it. A because, as you mentioned, sort of, there are a number of firm, consulting firms who do. There's a number of consulting firms who don't. And to your point of earning the right, you can take it both ways. In that, I know you were recently announced as one of the Times Top 100 Fastest Growing Companies, which is a fantastic award. And if time allows, we'll talk about it. But I'll let you sort of explain it in the context. Some might think you've earned the right to keep going on your own. For yourselves, obviously, you felt you'd earned the right to get that external capital. Kind of what led you to seek investment, and to your point, kind of how has that experience been for you? So, I suppose there's three parts to that. There's the kind of the experience post deal. There was the process itself of getting the deal done, which which took a reasonable amount of time. And then there was you know what led us to kind of to do it. And and, and starting with that, I, I think the what led us to do it and how what we actually wanted from it kind of bled into the process because we just didn't know what was possible like, kind of, but we wanted to get a partner who could help us grow and we thought again it's the first time in our life that there is a market there for what we're doing people are actually buying what we're selling and you know we go back to that 2019 period where people are saying i just don't get what you do and there's some still don't which is fine but you know that's 
that's on us to explain it better. But more and more people are buying, you know, data, private equity, it's a big market. So, so there's more to go after. And we've got great clients and people who where we've supported us a lot along the way from, from a client customer perspective. So, right, this should be the fun bit now. This should be the bit that's, it won't be easy, but if we want to grow and we, this is, this is the time to do it. So let's, let's grow. And actually, do we want to do that on our own? We could, but we'd make so many mistakes, which we will, we will make mistakes anyway. But having someone who's seen, who can recognize the pattern, who could help us avoid some of them, or at least we're going to make mistakes, we make mistakes for the right reasons. I think that was where our big thinking was. So having a value added partner was critical as opposed to just cash. That wasn't a primary goal at all. Secondly, we want, we wanted to create a structure for our team where we could reward them. So obviously reward everyone at the point of the deal, but then, create that more typical P type structure of growth share sweet equity and make it real because if you take a investor on board, of course they very rightly want their return in a set time period. So if you're a consultant or manager in this business and you've got access to some equity, you know that it's real. It's gonna happen. And it's not a I might make partner one day and you know maybe sit at the table. It's like, look, in four years, roughly time, there'll be another event and this will crystallize. So we're on a clock, which is a good thing and, and, a, and, a, and a bad thing, but probably a good thing. So it feels very real. So we wanted that structure with a time bound kind of sense of urgency around it. And yeah, you know, as, as founders said, you know, we've bootstrapped all the way through and we wanted to reward the team and, and take some off the table as well. So that was, those were the primary drivers. The flip side, I think this is where back to the, what are the risks and people talk about the risks of taking an investor and oh gosh, you know, they're going to kind of big brother over you the whole time and. We're fortunate we work in this world, so we work in PE. We, we help our clients with better governance, better reporting, better, you know, all the stuff. That, so we took some of that medicine ourselves beforehand. But we realized it's just part of growing up as a business. You have to be able to report better, and there's a reason why PE do it. But that's also a risk we were very happy with. We wanted to find the right partner. If the right partner tended to be a bit more intrusive, as long as they were doing it for the right reason, willing to take that risk. And that was okay for us. Might not be okay for another company or you know another set of founders and that's completely fine but for us we were happy with that but we learned so much during the process about our business it is like the best education for where all your holes are where all the bodies buried <laughs> kind of what you're doing well what people value i think for us a big thing was we, we knew of course but we didn't truly appreciate how much the integration between leo and i and the india uk you know, engineering, software development, commercial consulting analytics, that, that whole integration piece was just, it is our USP. You know, that is kind of where all our clients and, and so on just see huge value and kind of within us. We kind of knew it, but we didn't realize how important it was. So yeah, it was just, it was just a crash course in sort of kind of a complete business review, a mini MBA in marketing and finance, going through DD and everything. It was hard, but a brilliant learning exercise for us. Fantastic. Well, and I think you've covered a lot of the bases I was going to touch on as, as well there, Anoush. And, and you know, that journey and the rationale make, makes a lot of sense. I think to your point of what you were looking for from a partner, obviously this is an industry you work in. So did you know Baird before or did you go to market? And to your point, they were one of the suitors. So how did that process work for you? <laughs> we met at a PEI, so Private Equity International Conference, oh gosh, 22? Yeah, sort of sometime in... May 2022, as a potential client, we met and Louise, his operating partner there, was sort of looking for a you know, data provider or, a, you know, a, a sort of data partner consultant to help, you know, cross the portfolio. And then we mentioned that we were thinking about getting an investor and he said, you should go and talk to, talk to our team. And that's how we met. I think 
so we we known them, you know, for for a long time. We spoke to a few others. Look, it was quite a small world. Once once the world word went out that we were looking, we got quite a lot of inbound. But of course, we we sort of went to market as well with advisors and and ran a process. And I think a combination of fewer assets on the market, given the you know macroeconomic climate, fewer deals being done, our growth and the space we're playing in meant that it was quite a competitive process, and we had a lot of interest, which was which had its pros and cons but i think with with bad and like there were there were a number of other houses hippie houses we met and if we'd ended up with for whatever reason we'd ended up with then we would have been in a really great place but bad are a brilliant partner for us so i think i talked about the what's happened in the last sort of two three months this deal and even just the way they were during the deal and their consistency their their behavior and values and integrity you know is often a very overused word but it's basically are they going to do what they say they're going to do and that's not always a given in many walks of life, but they are right up there. Structurally, I think they are obviously, you know, in the in the UK, quite a relatively small fund, so they won't mind saying that. But they've got this; it's a really nice local feel here, where they've got we know pretty much all the team in, in London and very close with them, and they really understand services businesses, which is which is great. And again, not a given. A lot of funds say they, oh yeah, we we love services businesses, but show me your recurring satellite revenue. But they, they, the institution that they're backed by, so Baird Global, you know, the banking uh, is a huge operation. You know, five and a half thousand people globally. Obviously, a US institution. So, given US is a big part of our growth plans, they're going to be a huge help there, and they already have been. So, this global but local feel, you know, they've got operations in Asia as well, and and Europe, and we've, you know, I think we're both really excited because given our working P, and they are really well placed to help us do that and they're really excited to do it so they're really excited to help us we're really excited about the help they can do it and you know what they've done so far has been has been awesome so i think we're about to open office in new york in the next you know next couple of months hopefully and they've been just brilliant at saying right here, here are the agency you talk to here's what we do we'll come to new york and look at offices with you and and all the rest of it so i can't you know i mean it's just been a it's been a brilliant start to life Amazing. Well, it sounds exactly like that. And I, I feel Anish, we'll, we'll put after this, we'll put in the diary four years time, we'll do a round two. And we can get the uh, yeah, when the offices in New York and other US locations, we can we can get the yeah, how it's been the sort of story back. I say four years time, time will tell. But I think I, I wouldn't, you know, for, for people thinking about if you if you've got your consulting business to a scale or whatever, you know, or thinking about or anyone really thinking about external investment, there, there are lots of horror stories out there. Course, not just P, but with all kinds of, and um, but there are, there are horror stories in all walks of life. I think kind of just go and talk to people who've gone through it, and I think that defining your your cake, what is important to you, is a really critical thing. Because there are flavor, there are investors of all sorts of flavors and sizes and and deal structures. You know, we had a very much a minority deal, and it's still very much our business, so that was incredibly important to us. And you may decide going through and talking to people that it's not the right thing for you. But similarly, the more we talked to people, the more we were convinced that this is absolutely the right thing for us at this time. So I'd, I wouldn't, in a binary fashion, say it's for me or it's not for me until you've done your homework. Yeah, I think I think a great point. And yeah, do do what's right for you, not what you, you hear in the market, which is, yeah, it's something that sometimes we can all be guilty of. One last topic for today then, Anish, and, and we've talked a little bit about your setup and you, you highlighted how it is very unique. And that is, you know, you've got an office currently here in the UK, you've got, you know, the team in India. And this question applies as much if you've got a UK and an Indian team as it does to, you know, your UK and US team. But just because you've built the firm in that way, how have you approached 
building the culture so that it does feel like one firm? Or, or to your point around the legal structure, actually, did you and Leo take a decision that it's deliberately going to feel like two firms? How, how have you approached that? Yeah, I, and I think it's an, a, it's very much a constant challenge, you know, evolution. So I think a few things, no particular order, but one was obviously we said we wanted to work together and it was together. He's uh, Leo and, and I, and the reason we did that was because he's obviously a great guy. So that's, that's easy and family, which again, you know, we know can have its pitfalls, but actually is a big strength for us and we've known each other a long time. So, but technical, you know, there's the technical capability and understanding that he has more experience than me. He's worked on this side of the world as well, having spent so much time in, in the US. So multicultural, you know, I think obviously I've spent a lot of time in India as well. So it's not like we, I, I'm here and he's there and how do we mix it together? It's kind of, we understand both sides of the, of the coin and that's, that's helped. So it's an, almost an overlap of skills and, and, and culture. So I think that's kind of what we always aim for as opposed to, well, you've got one here and one there and how do you kind of, you know, bottom together? It's how do we make it as much of an overlap as possible? So, you know, all about all the consultants and team in the UK will all learn quite a lot of technical skills and technical, they may not be expert coders per se, but they'll have real spikes and sort of, and understand how to build a data warehouse and how to scope it. But the spike in that will, will be in Chennai, but similarly, all the Chennai team are all client facing and can have commercial conversations with clients around, well, how do you scope this? And actually, how do we do it? What business problem are we solving? And so on. So making it as multiple, as multicultural, as opposed to, you know, so to have one culture, you need to acknowledge all, all parts of it, but making it as overlap as possible. And, and we try and do things at a global level where we can, but I think like with the local nuance and that global, but local one team, but acknowledging that there are, there are different things in different parts of the world, which changes like the more you, <laughs> more you kind of, more people you have, times change, COVID, you know, work from home, all that was, um, so I think it's been constantly vigilant about it. And, you know, we have, I think with regards to culture, it's obviously a hugely important thing. And everyone talks about it. And, you know, even like around values and so on. Our, we, we have a set of values, but our value one is we say performance a team, support as a family. So we are family, Leo and I, and that we've always tried to genuinely look after people and not in a cringy way, sometimes in a cringy way, but kind of actually when they need it, you know, we're, we're there and don't worry, we've, we've got your back. And if you're struggling physically, mentally, whatever it is, if you're in, we got you. But if you're not trying your best <laughs> and if you're giving everything you have and you're struggling, we, we've got it. The team bit is we're a team. We're not a cult. And if you're not performing or you're not trying your best to improve and get better, not pulling your weight, then you're going to get benched. So I think finding that balance is a constant like struggle. We have nowhere near nailed it. I don't think we'll ever will, but I think being hopefully being aware of it and pushing it. So there's lots of things you can do. Of course, physically, you know, we took everyone to India from the UK September last year. Wow. So we had 180 people there and it was brilliant. But then we all came back and went, what have we learned? And actually, we're like, actually, we haven't done enough follow-up. We haven't actually put stuff into practice. So what are the things we could do? How do we really acknowledging that the technical ex the real technical expertise is in that team and that we point is our clients value the integration over in the UK it's key to just reminding everyone of that. And yeah, and there's sometimes some harsh words said. Sometimes there's a lot of support given for people who are trying to, to do it. But you know, we've we've got a sort of, you know, balanced scorecard for how we now assess people, which is a bit more corporate given we've grown a bit, but culture and how you're adhering to that is a is a big part of that. So it's 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 a it's just a constant battle. That will probably never win, but but it's one that we enjoy fighting for sure. No, and and I, I like that 
framing because yeah i think culture is one of those yeah there's lots of books written on it but i think it's always an elusive you know you, you never get to the end of that journey do you because the journey always changes and then like you say as you've got bigger the cultural challenges some of those change you need to adapt and the answer to this might just be yes but I, i'm curious around obviously the changing world of work you know the covid period is one thing but now we're into this kind of hybrid world has that been an advantage or a disadvantage to to your business and that culture a kind of I'm leading the witness a bit but i imagine now that we're used to being virtual you know whether your colleagues in chennai or croydon they're on a screen has, has that actually made that cultural integration easier for you or has it created sort of other unexpected challenges i mean a bit of both i'd say i think in the sense of so from a service perspective for our clients made a huge difference because we did have a lot of clients who were like oh yeah we'd like the user engineering team but they're in chennai and and i've been burnt by offshoring before and then again we're not an offshore business this is this is an integrated business and it's been like okay didn't quite you know get it (laughs) so we weren't quite sure what to do and actually how do you get around that and covid happened and as you say everyone whether you're in i mean literally was someone who's in coventry versus chennai and the clients said actually doesn't really matter guys are better and some clients had said actually we were on a call and we didn't know where where anyone was sitting on your team we couldn't tell which is great which is what you want so absolutely made a huge difference i think kind of obviously now you know post lockdowns and society opening up a bit there's been i'd say a little bit of but there's still more people okay but it's offshore you know can i time zones and so on but i think but broadly speaking that's made a huge difference and it's very much in our favor internally yeah it's a again would we want people to be in the office and here all the time and really kind of working together and over each other's shoulders, you know, as they were. Well, yeah, if that worked for them, but even pre-lockdowns, we basically, when we were much smaller, it was sort of, we don't really care where you work, just get it done. And actually, but when you're 10 people, that's much easier to kind of manage than when you're, you know, 90 people here and 150 in India. So we've given quite a lot of freedom to our team and we've said, look, it's effectively, yes, we'd like you to be in the office two days a week. But we've invested in your work from home setup, and we've said, but it is it is a don't take the piss kind of policy, and we don't monitor by kind of from a data perspective or anything like that. But we look at how is how are people performing? Are they integrating with the team culturally? How have they built those relationships and trust within the team? And if it's well, they're never here, so I can't. Then you know we have a word. So to give that freedom, we feel we have to be able to have those conversations as well. And everyone's different. There are plenty of companies we know who work completely remotely. And it works brilliantly for them, but it it probably wouldn't work for us, I don't think. Yeah, well, and I think it comes back to your point around being a team. And and one of the themes, I think, throughout today's interview, Anusha, if you put in maximum effort, that will be rewarded. And you know, it's only when you don't put in effort, you know, failing because you've been bettered you know, in a sporting term by the opposition or it just wasn't your day, is very different from failing because you haven't put your effort in and the same applies here i think yeah and, and we uh, we uh, effort as because i think sometimes that gets confused with with hours which in consulting is very easy to do you know you're effectively billing by the hour or day and and we say trying your best and i think again you know we have a lot we have a lot of sports people in, in the business or people who've done gb rowing or you know one guy's like a couple of them still play sort of national league hockey which is which is very time consuming from that sense but we fully in, encourage it because yeah, we want you to try your best, but we want you to have a life. And actually, that cliche, if you want something done, go to a busy person because they're just more efficient and they get stuff done. So trying your best doesn't mean just slogging hours and doing it inefficiently. It's, are you trying your best to get better? Are you trying your best to, and trying your best means if I've just had a really horrible project and I've been rubbish, but it's my first ever consulting project, which happened to me, <laughs> you know, a long time ago. 
are you then willing to saddle up again and go, right, I'm going to learn by going and working through Excel for dummies, speaking from experience <laughs> or these sorts of things. So mentally and trying your best as well as, as, as yes, of course, physically then putting a shift in when you need to. And that requires degree of humility. It requires degree of you know, drive. So that's why we, you know, we try and hire smart, nice, driven, numerate people and you kind of hope for the best from there. Really. <laughs> no, and I, I think, thank you for making that point because again, like you highlighted and I suspect why you, you flagged it, that do your best, try your best can sometimes be confused with do more hours. And I think as you've highlighted there, it's, it's not the how many hours all the time. It's are you doing your best in that, in sort of with everything else? Are you showing you're improving? So I think a great point just to close off there as well. Yeah. And it's, and it's, it's hard. I mean, I think because our team do work hard and we work, we have a very discerning client base, you know, who demanding in a good way. But I think that's why the growth journey and the rewards that come with it should help. But it's a, a, I, we are not perfect by any stretch and a lot of things we get wrong. But I think hopefully we're at least aware of most of what we're getting wrong and trying to fix it. But that it's a constant battle in that sense. So last questions for today, and I know you've got to run to a meeting shortly. So we've, they're brief questions, but I always ask every guest them. So I'd, I'd love to get your answers. And, and we, we've just touched on a book, and this might be the recommendation, but I always like to get my guest book recommendations. And, and the way I ask this is, is what is the book or books that has had either the biggest impact on you or you found yourself gifting to others most often? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting one. So I'm a, I'm a complete sucker for a sports-based storytelling, sports autobiography or lessons of life based on sports so pretty one-dimensional in that sense to really want to give most uh so legacy which is a book about the all blacks and uh you know my, my wife's from new zealand and probably the only person in new zealand doesn't like rugby but but <laughs> um so a lot of our friends do but it's a it's a brilliant book it's sort of the how the, the all blacks basically became the best team in the world well they were and then they they nosedived and then for them and then they came back and won two world cups because they decided to look at their culture but also look at how, and it's, you know, quite a lot of more spiritual Maori based beliefs and sort of thinking, you know, how they redid the hacker and what it meant for them. But then combined with how do businesses operate and top businesses operate and how do they bring, combine those two? And then how does, how do they apply it into the way they prepare and then play? And it's just a brilliant book. And I think a lot of, they can take a huge amount of inspiration from it. And it's that, um, because it's not binary. I think this, this is the thing. I think sometimes, you know, you get a lot of advice, which is this is right. This is wrong. And I think a big believer that the same answer can be sometimes right, sometimes wrong. And one of their big lessons is they call go for the gap, which is if you, um, you play to a structure or whatever, but if you see a gap and you think, you know, you pile in, you go, you go for it and you go for it as a, as a team. So things like that helps us kind of evolve and so on. So legacies, when I give a lot, the captain class is another one. So this is a, a very interesting book where someone's done a study on, wanted to do a study on the most successful sports teams ever. So a big, big chunk of the book is sort of devoted to explaining how he qualified what a successful sports team, you know, is, and it's sort of they've won consistently, and but you know, in a in the right competitive environment. There's a whole bunch of criteria which I won't go into, but there's some surprising ones in there, like the I think the Red Army ice hockey team of the 80s. You know, there's like the Barcelona football team, I think, I think Alexander Guardiola, and then All Blacks, I think twice, and a few others, and a lot of missions, but trying to find out what is the underlying principle, uh, what is the common theme, because they're all quite different. Cuban vo women's volleyball team was one of them. But it's the, the leaders, so it's the captains, and actually what are, their, then what are their traits, and actually what do they have in common, and concept of being, you know, you're not the best player in the team, but you've got sort of this ability to help 
influence people without being showy, the, the kind of the water carrier, the one who sort of actually loads the gun for everyone, everyone else behind the scenes and sort of different being a really good communicator, even if it's not, even if you're not the best talker. So it's a, it's a brilliant book. And one of the things is having ironclad emotional control is important to account, which I definitely don't have. So, so it's a, yeah. And the, and the final one is a very boring consultant one, which is the pyramid principle by, by Minto. So which does help. Yeah. That doesn't help with the most, but helps with communication, I imagine. Yeah. I think it's, it's a very basic one. And of course it's something, well, but you know, we get everyone here to read it. And someone says, I'm struggling to write. Well, you could do, you could do a lot worse than read that and kind of a way to organize your thoughts and get messages across. And, and going back to where we, with PE, we got asked the question, what is the best project that you do? Or what are the best three things that you do? What are the three things that you do? And there's a lot of ex-consultants there, but people think in that way and kind of it, it helps us. So those are probably the three. The one I would definitely will as well so is um, House of Lies, which is a book about consulting. Uh, there's a, t- there a TV show that based so, on the book. Yeah, based on the book. So I think anyone who's done any consulting, particularly in sort of 90s, noughties, will read that and laugh out loud and uh, have some PTSD as well. But but I'd highly, if you've, if you've got any consulting experience, I'd highly recommend it. I love it. Well, as, as someone who loves consulting enough to run a podcast on it, I think consulting books have got to be on my list. So I'm, I'm off on holiday shortly, so I'm going to add that. I had never heard of the captain class as well. It strikes me as kind of the good to great for sport. So I'm going to have to to check that out as well. And then the very last question, Nish, and this may be recapping things we've talked about. It, it might be new things, but you've got three people in front of you. One, just starting their consulting careers. It might be one of your analysts or your graduates. One, I'd I'd always call sort of manager level in a, a typical consultancy. So they've got a bit of experience, but they're not in the senior end yet. And then the third one is that person approaching partner, maybe someone like yourself thinking of launching a business, maybe someone going into a partnership. And and the question is just what what advice would you give to each of those people? It's a really tricky one. I think, I mean, I think everyone's different. I would say my theme for all three where it is and it and you apply it is this bias to action. So kind of just just do stuff and and get shit done, basically. I'm not allowed to say that. But kind of the um It's fine, it's, it's a grown up show. Uh, yeah. So if you're one year you know, you're graduate one year in, it's just fly into everything. No job is too big, no task is too small is a kind of, you know, something we have here as well. Like so if you've got to clean up the, the room and get all the whiteboard stuff down after a workshop and, and you're the one who's gonna digitize it, it's a pretty rubbish job. But you do it and you nail it and you do it the best you possibly can. If you've got to be the one, for whatever reason, doing the straw man or the strategy deck and you've never done one before and you go, oh my God, how am I going to do it? Just do it the best you can. Go and fly into it. Don't worry. Just go and do it. And I think the, if you do the more menial jobs really, really well, of course it builds, it builds trust and, and people go, well, the way you're going to get more interesting stuff is by doing this, the small stuff pretty well in a, in a firm. That's just how it is. And there's also nothing wrong with doing that, by the way. It's all a good part of learning and i'd say if you hold the pen on things more often than not you're going to be the one influencing and writing it down and seeing what you know so it's all that's great and similarly with the other at the other end you know if you're holding the pen a partner or someone is going to come and you know look at it and try and help you get through it and you're going to it's going to accelerate your learning you're going to get more exposure and you've had a go so i think and people respect that so i'd, fl- I'd fly into everything you can do and, and just try everything that you get given do it as best you can and then learn from it i think the four or five year candidate i think again it depends on where you are and you know what you're doing whether you're in a sector specialism or i think what are the forks it's almost like identifying the forks in the road for you and i think this is also we're trying to define a little bit about what's important your, your cake you know you're probably 25 26 you know maybe you know something like that in your in your life and kind of are you right 
what is it you really want to do? You might not know, but what do you want to do next? <laughs> and what is it that kind of you don't really want, you don't want to do? Often that process of elimination can be very important. And I think personally, and then go and try and do it. And it might be actually, you know what? I'm not quite sure. I don't want to be a partner in a consulting firm, but I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do. Okay. Well, look, I'm here. I'm just going to, I'm going to fly in. I'm going to, I'm going to sort of dithering about, I'm just going to stay here. I'm going to do the best I can. Let me get to the next level. And you never know. You might change your mind. But if it's something personally, or I don't want to travel anymore, or I don't want to do this, or then it makes the decisions easier. But whatever you do, make a, try and make a decision. And if you've got four or five years of great consulting experience, you've done well, I think by and large, you're going to be fine. You know, whatever you do, if you then go and do something else and it doesn't work out, you can always go back. But don't just waste a year by hanging around and, and not giving it your best. And I'd say, look, I've, 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 I know, that, that's probably the limit of my career. I think for a partner in a consulting firm, I, I think someone wanting to start their own business, you know, and they're much more senior and kind of, it's hard. It's not easy. And I think, again, do all your homework, talk to lots of people and then figure out what type of business you'd like to run. Do you want to do it all from scratch? Are you willing to really get your hands dirty and like do all the invoicing and do this and do that and kind of, you know, real grunt work? Or do you want to actually go and join a business like J-Man where a lot of that is set up, but I want to be a partner who can help grow and, and so on. So I think those are the things to really think about. And where can you hit the ground running? If you leave your partner off, what are you going to do that's going to help, you know, and revenue and hit the ground running and get traction? I would think about that. But that's my own very biased view around kind of, you know, I, the, the thought of saying, right, I'm going to give myself a year to plan and, I'm going to start a business and it doesn't really matter. It sort of feels very alien to me, but there are plenty of people who do it and do it really well. So you've got to find your own path. No, I think a great place for us to finish, Anoush, and thank you for that. And and thank you for today. This has been brilliant. Derry was right. He said it would be a good interview, and it certainly has been. So the only thing that's left to ask, obviously, for anyone listening who's who's enjoyed this, wants to find out more about yourself, wants to find out more about J-Man, where would you point them to? Where can they get in touch? Yeah, good question. I, I, I'm on LinkedIn. Unfortunately, I'm not on not on Twitter or didn't quite get around to getting on on Instagram or anything like that. But LinkedIn, I think like you know they find my details on the website as well. But I think kind of if someone LinkedIn and sort of mentions the podcast, then or they, if they contact you guys and think they're an interesting person to talk to, very very happy to do that. But always open to helping and having a chat to someone if they think that can be useful. Amazing, Anish. Well, I'll put details of your LinkedIn in the show notes. So if anyone who's listened to this, they're there at the bottom. If anyone gets in touch with me, I will I will follow up, of course. And I think that brings us to an end. So thank you very much and enjoy the rest of your day. Pleasure. Thanks, Nick. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Climbing Consulting. If you have any guest recommendations, comments, ideas, thoughts on how I can make this show better for you, just drop me an email. It's Nick at createengage.co.uk and I really look forward to hearing from you.